The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Hey there, and welcome to Big Universe. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman and media consultant type guy. Joining me today is my amazing co-host, spiritual rebel Sarah Bowen. Sarah's the author of Sacred Send-Offs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? Oh, I'm good, Jim. I'm feeling shiny. Feeling shiny? Is that a reference <laughs> to Firefly or what? Oh, it could be. It is. It they was, say that it... all the time in Firefly. <laughs> is that where I got it from? Perhaps. So for those of you who don't know Firefly, Firefly was a TV show and there was a movie too, right? Yes, there was a movie. That Jim got me hooked on when I first met Jim. Uh, that is kind of a space cowboy western. Is that the best way to yeah, explain Firefly? Yeah, I would Firefly? say so, yes. Uh-huh. Which I loved, and there was two, not nearly enough seasons of it, but I didn't know that's where I got shiny. Yeah, I, I have learned to start to um, explain how I'm feeling rather than saying good or bad by saying shiny or prickly. Ooh, okay. Well, I'm glad we got mm-hmm. shiny today and not prickly. Yeah, you got shiny today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I wanted to ask you, you uh, you got an award recently for your Sacred Send-Offs book. Tell me about that. I did. Yeah. You know, it's kind of award season. It's not as big as the Grammys or the Emmys or those kind of things for us writers. Uh, but they're at the end of the year, there are a lot of different organizations who put together like their best of the last year books or, you know, different kind of award things. And Spirituality and Practice, which is a wonderful website if folks haven't been to that, Spirituality and Practice, uh, which has a lot of different spiritual practices you can do. And they have a lot of uh, media alerts and and book, you know, things you should watch, movies, books, et cetera, et cetera. Put together a best spiritual books of 2022 and Sacred Sendoffs got on that list. So that was very exciting. That is awesome. That is quite awesome. Yeah. And there's 49 other books on that, of which about half of them made it into my shopping cart. <laughs> so you book addicts, go over to spirituality and practice, and you'll see the best roundup, according to them, of this past year across the board. Well, we are going to talk to Susan Piver today, who's a Buddhist teacher and the author of her latest book is The Buddhist Enneagram. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating the combination of Buddhism and the Enneagram, I've never heard of that before. And it seems really like a great connection. And we're going to dive into that today. Yeah, I for I for many, many years have been around the Enneagram, uh, but wasn't quite sure how to figure out which of these different uh, types uh, or energies or whatever we'd like to call them within this uh, described within this book. Are So I was delighted that Susan's book finally cracked that for me. And I have a little bit more information than I had. I think the Enneagram can be something that's very, well, very shiny and exciting, and also sometimes very confusing. It takes a, you know, can take a little bit, you need a, what do you, you need a translator or a tour guide, I suppose. And would Susan, you agree with that, Susan, Jim? I would say that. And Susan does act yeah. as a, as a translator um, yeah. guide in that. Um, I think the interview is going to be very interesting. It's going to be a lot of fun to dive into the the Enneagram. I don't know a lot about it, to be honest. And so getting the chance to kind of understand where things are coming from in this perspective is going to be really great. Yeah, it reminds me a little a while ago, and people could find in the archives, we did a a, a book where 
we determined our types based on the elements. Do you True. remember that? We did I do remember fire, that. wood, wind. That was another really interesting kind of, of interview of these trying to get information about ourselves. So this reminded me a little. I think that's back in the archives probably a year or so now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all these things that we feature on the show are are various tools from different perspectives. I think that's what's important is that I don't believe that there's any one particular path. I think there are multiple paths and the information we can gather from different paths is is truly valuable. Agreed. It's like I've got one foot in a boat, one foot in a car. I've got one arm on a train and one foot on a plane. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> There you go. You know, these different paths, these different ways of being, uh, they add a richness. I think that's why so many of us are interested in interfaith or interspiritual or multiple belonging or spiritual fluidity, you know, whatever word we want to use around this, because there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from each and any one of these viewpoints. So I hope people get a lot out of today. Well, do you have a quote for us today? I do. Here we go. <laughs> The body, mind, personality, roles that we assume, and things that we do, all these change over time and ultimately fade away. Our essential nature remains unchanged. Take refuge in that. Oh, I love that. I love this because it's completely the opposite of how I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I love I love to look at my personality and what my mind does and what's happening with my body and what is my role and what's next and these kind of things. And this reminder that all of those are really useful on these paths. And at the same time, they change, they're fluid, they fade away. And there's that kind of inner spark wrapped in all of those things. So that's what I brought to us today. And that's Ellen Grace O'Brien. What'd you bring, Jim? We are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. Oh, I know this. I know that last sentence, but it is escaping me. Who is this? It's attributed to the Buddha, actually. Is it? It is. There you go. So <laughs> there are so many beautiful things attributed to the Buddha. And there's also that wonderful page on the internet, fake Buddha quotes. Right. It could be, you know, you, you just never be. know. You just it never know. Be. But it sounds like something he might say. So I he might uh, agree with it. He might agree yeah, with it. I like that. I like that. That's good. <laughs> good wisdom to start today with, Jim. All right. You ready to get into the interview? Let's do it. Susan Piver is a Buddhist teacher and the New York Times bestselling author of The Hard Questions, The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, Start Here Now, and The Four Noble Truths of Love, and others. Her latest book is The Buddhist Enneagram. Piper has been a student of Buddhism since 1993. She's founder of the Open Heart Project, a virtual meditation community with 20,000 members all over the world. She lives in Somerville, Massachusetts, and Austin, Texas. Welcome to Big Universe, Susan. So great to have you on. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, you know, it's uh, it's such an interesting combination of things. I've never heard of the combination of the Enneagram and Buddhism before. And, you know, your book is certainly very interesting and unique. And uh, I can't wait to dive into it with you. Thank you. I look forward to it as well. All right. So I guess the first question I have is the most basic question I could give you. And that is, what is the Enneagram? Yes, very good place to start. What is the Enneagram? 
Uh, so enia, E-N-N-E-A, is the Greek prefix for nine, the number nine. And the Enneagram describes nine ways of being in the world. Some people call it nine personality types, but I, I think it's bigger than that. It's nine ways of being in the world. And where where does it come from? I never quite understood where the Enneagram came from. Is there is there a, there's no easy answer, is there? Well, no, and yes, in this because the easy answer is nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there could be a very complex or you know a more detailed answer, which I'll just very briefly. The first person known to have taught the Enneagram, something called the Enneagram, is the Greek-Armenian mystic George Gurdjieff in the 40s and 50s, I think, 30s maybe. Uh, but he didn't teach it as a system of personality typing. He taught it as a way of understanding the natural cycles of the world, how nature works. And then fast forward 30 years or so to a fellow named Oscar Ichazo in South America who transmitted, for lack of a better word, the Enneagram of personality, the Enneagram that we are talking about. And then he had students and they taught it and it rolled from there. But if you ask, according to the stories, if you ask Gurdjieff, well, where did you find this? He said he saw it on a cave, in a cave drawing in Armenia. Huh. If you ask Oscar Ichazo, he would have said he was taught by a mysterious cabal of secret wisdom holders hmm. and the archangel Metatron. Interesting. Yes, nobody knows is the real answer. And so you, you talk about the Enneagram being spiritual and not self-help. Why do you say that? Because a lot of people, you know, confuse the two with that. Yes, absolutely. Well, I guess the as a Buddhist teacher, I also try to say that meditation practice is not self-help. It's a spiritual practice. And I guess the uh, difference is self-help begins with the idea that there's something wrong with you. Let's fix it. Right. Okay, anything's wrong with me that I'd like to have fixed, so no argument with that. But spiritual practices like meditation in the Buddhist tradition, at least, which is the only one I know anything about, and the Enneagram start with the idea that there's something perfect and beautiful about you. Hmm. And any notion to the contrary is a sign of confusion. So can we dissolve that confusion so you can see yourself truly? I wouldn't call that self-help. I would call that transformational, spiritual, some other kind of word. And so why do you think that the Enneagram has proliferated to the, to the, as a personality type has proliferated as much as it is? If you go on Google, anyone who's listening right now, and you put Enneagram in, there are probably 300 people willing to charge you $29 to figure out what type you are and send you a personalized report. So mm -hmm. from that kind of space of this, this kind of mystical background, right? And this this becoming or this evolving of this way of thinking or these these ways of being in the world to where we are now. Why, why do you think that happened? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. And let me just uh, preface my thought by saying there is no test. Don't give anyone $29. There is no test for the Enneagram. There's no you test. How do you figure out your number? 
you got to figure it out. What did Sarah do for 15 years to figure it out? <laughs> Listen to everybody, all of my seminary students and other people in spiritual circles say, I'm a seven with a four. I'm a three with a five. I'm a six with a two. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we'll get into that today because I actually did finally found my number uh, working through Susan's, th Susan's book here. But I think it's an important place to start because, you know, the, the first question, I think, for many people when they hear about this system or about this way of thinking is, well, what am I? Mm -hmm. Sure. And there've been a lot of kind of short, uh, I don't know, you know, we're, we're really into the, the Vogue tests and, and astrology apps and all of those kind of things, I think in a, uh, in a technology minded world right now. So I was just kind of curious about your, your view of how that happened. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I'd only have guesses because I don't know, but if it had a, the Enneagram had a wave like this previously in the late 80s to the mid 90s. It became popular uh, in a similar way. Oh, we use it in corporations, you could use it in hiring, you could use it to make your relationships better. Great. And then it really died down. No one wrote Enneagram books, no one, maybe 15 years ago, 12 years ago. I mean, people wrote them, but they didn't break through. And then for reasons that I don't understand, but I'm sure are quite valid, the evangelical Christian world embraced it. Hmm. Is that right? That's interesting. In a, in a beautiful huh. way, I would say. Maybe evangelical yeah. isn't, not across the board evangelical, but a segment of the Christian world embraced it. And if the most of the books on the bestseller lists on Amazon or whatever about the Enneagram are from a Christian perspective and how it can help you to be, have a closer relationship with, with God or Jesus, how you can develop your own, the qualities that Jesus had and find those qualities in the Enneagram and great. And that, it just spread, it just spread. And I, another reason that I think it has exploded again for the second time in modern history is uh, it's just so friggin' helpful. And it names things that you otherwise would not be able to name. It's like nine blueprints of nine blind spots. So if you wanna know what you can't see about yourself, which you don't have to wanna know, but at a certain point in your life, you're like, I'm doing all sorts of things that are causing pain. How can I see more about who I am, the Enneagram, delivers the blueprint that makes a lot of sense and what what you also just said there's so much deconstruction and reconstruction work right now happening in for a lot of people particularly within the christian tradition so that idea of being able to uh to see what you can't see that makes sense I, that is an excellent observation susan thank you oh you're so welcome i'm, I'm delighted that's, that's useful all right jim where do you want to go now <laughs> well, I'm interested in how you inspired the, the, I'm interested in the connection between Buddhism and the Enneagram. How did that develop for you? And why, why did you pursue that path? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, it, there is no connection between Buddhism and the Enneagram, except for my, in my mind. In other words, the Buddha didn't teach it. There's no like, Buddhist schools that say you should learn the Enneagram. So I just want to be clear that it's a personal uh, weaving. And so I've been a Buddhist practitioner for close to 30 years. 
and I've been studying the Enneagram for close to 30 years too, uh, unrelated. And But I found that when I started teaching about 10, 12 years ago, I would teach a lot about compassion because Buddhists, that's what Buddhist people do. We talk about compassion. What is it? How do you get more of it? What if someone is really mean to you? Can you still be compassionate? And how do you deconstruct compassion? And there are countless unbelievably profound teachings in the Buddha Dharma about true compassion. And they're extremely valuable. However, when I would go into my life and someone would be mean to me, or I would be grumpy, the first thing I thought of was the Enneagram. The Enneagram help, help, has helped me to be more compassionate towards myself and others more than anything I've ever encountered. It's a, it's a like on the boots on the ground living tool for enacting compassion. So for me, that's where the that's where the uh, intersection was. The I'm still trying to understand how you determine what your enneagram number is now. And I, I've taken, I've gone online taking the test. So I'm theoretically, I'm a six and a four with a four. And and Sarah, what are you? Oh, I'm straight up seven. Straight up seven. Anyone who's listening to this and knows me, I'm straight up seven. <laughs> and you're you're telling me that it's basically it's an it's an evolution of what we when we look at the different parts of it. The different numbers and that sort of thing it's more of an evolution of thought for us what feels right rather than any kind of test is that right that is right and there's no such thing as six with four by the way oh okay there's a, there's you could have six and a five wing or six and a seven wing huh but here's what i suggest for for typing yourself yes first i'll try i'll try i'll try not to go on and on about this but it's a great passion of mine uh first Note that the Enneagram nine numbers are divided into three groups of three. Hmm. Eight, nine, and one are called the intuitive triad or the instinctual triad. Two, three, and four, the emotional triad. Five, six, and seven, the mental triad. Now we all have feelings and intuitions and thoughts, but for each of us, one of those forms of intelligence leads and its corollary difficulties. Hmm. So for if you're an intuition person, you're, you express frustration through anger. This is way broadly speaking, and there are many, many nuances. If you're on the emotional triad and things don't go your way, your emotions become unbalanced. You can become depressed or needy. And if you're on the mental triad, present company excluded, I'm quite sure. <laughs> She's going to say something right now, folks. It's going to hit hard. <laughs> and things don't go your way. You go to your default intelligence which is thinking so you think think your way out before. of it or withdraw right yeah, think harder what if i did this what if i did that let's make a diagram let's make a case and that's called anxiety in the enneagram hmm. so you start there at which triad am i in then and i think this is extremely important and i wish uh, every enneagram teacher emphasized this forget about type and look at subtype Subtype is in the Enneagram describes the three instinctual drives that we all have, which are different than the three intelligences. The three instinctual drives color type. And it's easier to find the subtype than the type. So the instinctual drives are, and we all have them all. First is for self-preservation. We're just, we have it. 
Second is called the social drive to belong to something bigger than yourself or to find your place in the tribe or your world. And third is the sexual drive, which doesn't just mean wanting to have sex. It means wanting to connect with one person in the various circumstances of your life. So Sarah could be a self-preservation seven. She could be a social seven or should she could be a sexual seven and they're very different. Hmm. But the subtypes are easier to find than the type because if I say, well, the self just using for as an example, the three subtypes are going to a business conference. <laughs> three subtypes walk into a bar. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the self-preservation subtype, whether they're a seven or a four or two, whatever they are, okay, I'm going on this trip. What am I going to sleep on? What if it's too cold? What if I don't like the food? How, where's the exit? How do I get out of here? I better bring snacks. You know, you're just thinking of your physical self and safety. The social subtype going to the same conference would think, well, how, how's the room arranged? Will people be able to see me? Is this going to be a lecture or is it just a discussion? If people go out to eat, will they invite me? You know, what is my place in here? Am I proud to be associated with this or not sure yet? It's different than I better bring snacks. And then the sexual subtype person, again, independent of number, will be thinking, will there be someone there who will get me, hmm. who I can talk to and share this experience with? So that's, those are three diff very different, all totally reasonable concerns. But if you're one and your partner is the other, it's likely to be like, well, why is that important? That because we don't, we only see things through our own lens. Anyway, so find your center of intelligence, find your subtype, and then go from there. So from, I'll use myself as an example, because I know myself to some degree, I had no clue that I would be on the emotional triad. That, I didn't think that at all. Nonetheless, I knew I was a self-preservation subtype. So I, I didn't read about one, two, three, four, et cetera. I read about self-preservation one, self-preservation two, self-preservation three, self-preservation four, ding, 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 ding. Hmm. All the lights went on and hmm. that's me. And that's what you look for in typing yourself eventually. And it probably took me a year. It could be sooner, it could be later. Uh, you read something, you're like, oh my God, that is me. And that's what you look for to type yourself. And no one can tell you what that is. And it makes me upset, actually, that people say, oh, I took the test and I'm a two. Well, maybe. I think I heard once a, a very great, famous Enneagram teacher who, has, who I have endless respect for and has developed probably the most commonly used testing instrument in the Enneagram said 50% of the results are incorrect. Hmm. I think that's generous. And I think, I think what Susan's talking to is very much what my experience of this was where, you know, it, and it doesn't matter for me which system, right? Whether I'm trying to figure out what dosha I am, right? Or whether I'm trying to figure out something based on my birth sign or any of these kind of things that any of the tools or tests that are out there might steer you kind of in some vague generation uh, direction, 
that then you've got to you've got to read it and see if it makes sense and see if you feel it. And when I was reading, uh, Susan, when I was reading your book and I was going along and I'm going along and then I, you know, I got to the chapter that, that on seven and I went, uh oh, Susan already knows me. <laughs> like what she's writing here is, is, you know, is dead on. And so I think that it requires us not to ask someone else to tell us what we are, which would be the easy thing for many people, right? right what am right. I? What am, what am I? What do I do? How do I fix it? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. Whereas being able to read something and really intuit into this, okay, this feels right. Some of it feels really shiny, like, yes, there I am. And then some of it feels like, oh no, yeah, there I am. But being able to, what I appreciate about the boot, I'm waxing poetic a little bit about here, but what I appreciate about the Buddhist lens with this for, for people who may be listening and have read other things, but it, what Susan's inviting us to do is to be with what we're receiving about ourselves or what we're how we're typing ourselves, but to be able to be with that in a way that doesn't say, here's the um, here's the reason or the excuse for the way that I am, or here's the thing I need to fix, but taking it on more as here's information that I can use for walking through my life. I hope that's what you intended in the book, but that's that's what I received from it was here's good information, here's useful things about how I'm navigating the world and where I might trip myself up a little bit and where I might, you know, lean into things I do well. Would that be fair for how we type ourselves? That's the best. Yourself in it? Yes. That's a perfect explanation. And it is a best case scenario for how I would hope someone would view this work. So I, I really, really appreciate that. And also Another similarity that what you were saying reminded me of, and then I'd love to hear what made you know you were seven, if you don't mind. Um, both Buddhism, especially Vajrayana Buddhism, the Tibetan traditions, which is where I practice, and the Enneagram say that what you think is your most problematic characteristic, it is, but it is on a spectrum with your most powerful, beautiful, extraordinary characteristic mm -hmm. so you don't get rid of the bad one and then you get the good one the bad one and the good one are the same they mm -hmm. just express themselves in different ways so what you said sarah to be with who you are is absolutely right and in so doing you also come to see that this is an energy it's not a problem and when i it's an all energies ha can have a good use a good consequence but if you so it's spectrum poison that's, and medicine on, are the same that's a beautiful way of phrasing it um make it up the buddha <laughs> it's a beautiful way of phrasing it regardless <laughs> he's a good guy he was a he was a good person there. Got a lot of, got a good he had, some, he had a little wisdom he had a little bit just a little bit mm -hmm. I, I think that what can happen when um when i was reading along was it can start to sound very confusing very quickly, right? A one does this or a two or a three or find this and a four. And if you're not already, I'm a 12 stepper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at first the 12 steps didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. People would say, oh, your step three is broken or lean into your step six. And until I got the language mm -hmm. around it, um, it wasn't nearly as shiny. It wasn't really, it didn't necessarily stick in as much. But being able to read about the different types starts to create the ability to to speak that language 
And so as I was reading certain chapters, I was like, oh, wow. There's, of course, the the hazard of being able to say, oh, my husband is a, <laughs> and my mother Which is Which is really a, tempting you know. <laughs> to do to say, you know, very, oh, this person tempting. this person is uh, this particular type. I know it yeah. because they do this, but that's yeah, not, useful, useful. That's not useful, yeah. Right, yeah. well, it's useful in, well, let's see with Susan. I mean, it, it's useful in me knowing, okay, if I'm, if I tend towards this energy and someone I'm working with or someone who I'm married to with or somebody that I'm doing a podcast with, you know, is a different kind <laughs> of energy, what we might be able to have a little bit of information about what might be going on in something. But to answer, to answer Susan's question, I think that what I noticed was when I started to read that chapter, I felt it in a way that I didn't feel the other chapters. Mm -hmm. So it's not, there's, that's not an academic answer to it, but it, you know, I just started to feel like, wow, this feels like knowledge that is, is deep within me about myself. I don't know if other people, Jim, do, did you have an experience like that while you were reading or did you find yourself kind of across the chapters? You know, I found myself across the chapters. Um, I, I think I need to really dive into it uh, uh, some more to really resonate with something particular. I did find that there was some resonance with with the the number six, but you know, I was biased by the uh, by the test I took, you know, so um, I think I really need to lean into it some more to get a better understanding of of what each type means to me and and do exactly what you're talking about there. Focus on the subtypes. And did, did you, were there any other numbers that you thought, oh yeah, that maybe, or, or absolutely not either. <laughs> the uh-uh. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I can't, I can't recall. Okay. Um, I, I just know that uh, I focused on six because you know, that's what the, that's what the test told yeah. me. So that's what you were so told. I, that's you what were. I was told, which is not, you know, I'm understanding now that's not the, that's not the path towards a greater understanding. So I think I need to lean into it some more. Well, maybe we should talk a little bit about these types then a little I'd more love to. For, for folks who are listening. Yeah. And the, the tests, by the way, you don't, they're data points. They're not answers. Right. Right. Good. Keep that data point. It, it, you may be a six, but this test says you thinks you are. So, okay. Park that data point. Right. Right. Um, and in terms of typing others, just to go back to what you were saying, Sarah, and Jim too, of course you can't help it. You, you can help <laughs> it. However, we don't really know what another person is, except right. my husband and my mother don't really know what types they are. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> if you, what I try to say to myself is not, and what is to be avoided assiduously, whether you are me or anyone else is, oh, you're a two. Therefore, I'm putting you in the two ghetto in my mind, and I'm I'm ceasing to look at who you are as a whole person. Mm. Oh, two, so you're always going to do this, or you're never going to do that. We don't want to create nine ghettos. Well said. So when I see here, when, when I'm talking to someone, I think, oh, they, I think they're a two. What I say to myself is not they're a two. I feel the energy of two. I feel the energy of two, hmm. and then. I don't know what's going to happen, but that is, uh, I think, a gentler way. Mm, to hold. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Mm. When when we talk about Buddhism and the nine paths of warriorship, uh -huh. tell me, I mean, for someone who doesn't know, what do you mean by war warriorship? What does that mean? Yeah, great question. 
it means to me, and it can mean all sorts of things. And the spiritual warrior is very much a, a notion in Tibetan Buddhism in particular, maybe other forms, but I don't know much about other forms. And a, a warrior is one who is committed to being awake and not, and being awake means feeling everything. Hmm. It doesn't mean rubbing your face in everything but it means being awake so that you can be of benefit. So that's simple. It's like a, I think the Tibetan word is pawo, which is also sometimes translated as hero, but it's not like, you know, hey, look at me, I'm a brave hero. It's like, I'm here to face what it means to be human and to be alive and to see the world and to still aspire to be a benefit. Hmm. That's, that's nice. That's nice. Um, nice. When we dive into, can we dive into a little bit the, the various warriorships and numbers that are associated with that? Does that work for you? Sure. Sure. Let's, I don't think we can go through all, but let's just pick a few. Sure. We'll start with seven. <laughs> <laughs> here we are and, and where that, did that I, come from oh, i don't know it was magic oh I that up. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh snap i call uh nine seven the warrior of magic because sevens their eyes are trained on the horizon they're looking at what is possible they're looking at what could be and they're visionaries and they're not stymied by their messy emotions as much as other types because their gaze is fixed on what could be and what could be is always extraordinary because hmm. what could be is extraordinary and sevens have the gift of reminding us that oh it could be great and that's a kind of magic because the other eight of us are walking around going, oh shit, everything, this is terrible. This is never gonna work. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Really make a case for that. And sevens are, show up and go, okay, yeah. But also what about this? Look at what I see. And that is a, we need that. Hmm. We need that. Uh, six, I since that number came up too, I, I call the warrior of truth. Hmm. Because that's different than magic. Hmm. Sixes are always trying to look behind the surface, under the surface, behind the curtain. What is really going on here? Hmm. And I know it's not what it appears to be, whatever it is. And often they're right. So they're they're looking, well, what is true? You say this, but do you mean it? You promise this, are you going to deliver it? So they're, they're second guessers and they're protective of others who may be fooled by appearances, which is the other eight of us. And they don't rest until they find the truth. Hmm. And uh, they always think something bad is going on. And often they're right. So when <laughs> I need to always travel with a six. Oh my. Right? You definitely yeah. want them. 
Me yeah, too. They're gonna because be- it balances. So even just listening to Susan say that those two right after each other, making the connection of the six can help balance the seven and the seven can help the six also be able to lift up every once in a while out of where Absolutely. they are. Yeah. Absolutely. And the six is always going to be on the lookout for danger. And sevens are the Don Quixotes. We're not going to see the danger coming yeah, we're right in the middle of it. Looking up there, yeah. not looking yeah. here. Hmm. So that's broadly speaking, obviously, but sixes won't rest until they find the truth. And when COVID first hit in North America and we were on lockdown and we didn't know whether we should wash our boxes or touch each other, every six I know relaxed. Because like, now you see the world the way I do. Is that right? Interesting. This could be dangerous. That could be dangerous. Don't, it is. They're like, now huh. this, is how, this is how I operate all the time. Mm. Fascinating. And I, I appreciate you also saying a number of times here, this is broadly speaking, and we're, you know, we're talking in archetypes and we're talking in generalizations and all of that. And I appreciate that. And at the same time, um, the observation that, that we have those stereotypes or archetypes for a reason, because, you know, we have these kind of tendencies um, that we see across, across groups of people is, you know, holding both of those ideas. Yeah. I think you can, yeah, one can hold both and honor both and not, not land on one and discount the other. Yeah. But it is fascinating. So what did you observe? What other things have you observed recently that might uh, in these types that might hit us? Hmm. Uh, well, I'll, I'm constantly in my relationship, in my marriage, constantly seeing the oneness of my husband and my foreness. And so ones are the ethical, moral warriors of the Enneagram. I call hmm. them the warriors of exertion hmm. because they <laughs> never stop trying to make things not just right, perfect. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, this is my husband sitting in the next room and you can probably hear me, but that's okay. He knows this. Uh, <laughs> ones are the kind of people that have a place for things. They're just walk by. They have a place for things. This goes here, that goes there. I like it when the cups are here and the plates are there, you know, just these everyday household things. For me, I'm like, oh, put them here sometimes, I put them there another time. If he opens a cabinet to find his water bottle, which is usually here, I'm, I'm holding a water bottle uh, uh, on in the screen, and I have, for some horrible reason, moved it here, <laughs> you know, a couple, one foot away. He'll open the cabinet, look in there and go, where is it? I can't find it Hmm. because he doesn't see it unless it's right. Right. Where it's supposed to be. Where it's supposed to be. Good. So I think you just helped my marriage a little bit, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Which explains why when my husband opened it, not that he might be a one, but there is some oneness. And when he opens the drawer and says, where are the scissors? And I say underneath the paper. <laughs> so the so test that would be a oneness. Interesting. But Duncan, that's my husband's name. His test for are you a one is do you think if you have the good fortune to have a dishwasher, do you think there is a correct way to load the dishwasher? <laughs> 
And everyone who's a one goes, of course. And everyone <laughs> else goes, what? I didn't know. <laughs> so anyway, that's also. So what about fours then? You mentioned, you teed up four. So four, hmm. I believe, if I remember correctly, is the warriorship of poetics. Is that right? Poetics, that's right. First, I called it the warrior poetry. I made up these names, so everyone should take them with a grain of salt. The warrior poetry, because I don't, I'm not a poet, but what I imagine poets do or musicians or artists in general is vibrate with something. And then in response to it, produce something true, something that expresses a depth of some kind. And, but then I change it to poetics because fours have a gift for understanding the poetics of a situation, not just what is said, not just what is intended, not just, you know, the goals or the, but what is, the, what are the poetics here? What are the underlying energies? What is the nuance? What is really happening between us? Where are our hearts? Mm. Fours are no more or less emotional than any of the other types, but there is an attunement to emotion and a willingness to share emotional things, usually with other fours. Uh, and fours are attuned to, fours are the type on the Enneagram that are not afraid of pain. I mean, they don't want pain, but sevens, for example, each type has an avoidance. The avoidance of seven is pain. Nobody wants pain. Because when you're looking at the horizon, pain is always happening right now. So you have to shift your gaze. Fours think when things become painful, now we're getting somewhere. Hmm. Something real interesting. So let's all take a pause. Pain is interesting. Pain means we've crossed the border line of conventional and whatever is beyond conventional. We're stretching. So uh, that's where, that is the gift of fours. If sevens can constantly remind us that there, that great possibilities abound, fours can stand with you in your deepest sorrows hmm. and not flinch, not try to get you to do anything or fix anything, but to just be with you. So I, have said to my my friends and people who know me, I'm not a great friend in the sense of let's chat, let's go out, you know, do you want to hang out? I always try to be better at that because I, I love the people who I love, but I'm not ever going to be that kind of friend. However, if you are being born or dying, call me. Hmm. I'll be right there because that's what fours do. That's hmm. They're attracted to intensity also. This so beautifully tees up, I think, why we need to have all sorts of different people in our lives. You know, I'm thinking I, I need I need a one for this. I need a six for that. I, I need a one to know, know where the stuff in my house is. I, know, I need a four <laughs> to get things done. You I can need hire a six them, to tell I me, Yeah, I need the six to tell me that my magic sometimes needs to come down to earth a little bit. But I, I can start to see, even though we haven't had the time to go through each one of these in great detail, I can start to see the usefulness of, of understanding, you know, the, the, the gifts and the strengths that people have in these ways. Um, not, so not only for yourself in understanding, you know, kind of how you tick and how you move in the world, but, but 
why we might value other things and other people or, you know, who we might need to be surrounded by. So I, I know folks will need to read the book to, to really go into depth on each one of these different types of um, each of these nine and really digest it more than we're able to do very quickly here in a short podcast. But that, that's the sense I'm getting. I, I love that. That's exactly why it is a compassion tool. Not because you feel bad for people or you're like, oh, yeah, let me try to help you. It's more like you can see who they are hmm. and you can make space for them to be who they are. And people really like that. And that's where that's where compassion lives. And so you stop faulting people as much because you just see them more clearly. And there's nothing that we want. And this is a broad statement that I also think is completely true. There's nothing that we want more than to be seen. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. That is love. Mm -hmm. uh, in this whole process, you speak about transforming poison into wisdom as part of, you know, Tibetan Buddhism and the Enneagram. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. And, you know, we talked earlier about the triads, you know, the instinctual triad, the emotional triad, the mental triad, and the three there are three poisons that are related to those. Um, I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. So poison to medicine or wisdom is uh, in the Buddhist sense, because this is a, a very straightforward explanation that is easiest, easy for us all to understand because we all get angry. So anger <laughs> is- Occasionally. Yeah, sometimes. I get angry once. Um, anger is an afflictive emotion in Buddhism and not just in Buddhism. It, it, it is very potentially dangerous. What could be the wisdom in there? So in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, anger is seen on a spectrum with a kind of wisdom called mirror-like wisdom. So when you're angry, you're focused, you're one-pointed, you're not sleepy, you're very, very uh, absorbed in something. And if you can somehow, even for a moment, let the story of the anger go, true though it may be, maybe because you did this or that happened, to let that go for a moment and instead connect with the energy of anger, you come into contact with a profound kind of wakefulness and clear seeing because anger is focused. So mirror-like wisdom is the, is the wisdom corollary of the poison of anger. Hmm. And so they're on a spectrum. So if you're a seven, for example, your poison, quote unquote, is called uh, gluttony because sevens like to feel good. So mm -hmm. if one fill in the blank makes me feel good, I'd like 2000, please. Or four. Or four, okay, fair <laughs> enough. So the, the uh, virtue, as it's called in the Enneagram of seven, is sobriety, which doesn't sound fun. Gluttony could be fun, I guess. But gluttony and sobriety <laughs> live on a spectrum. Hmm. So you don't know what is too much or enough unless you have some relationship to gluttony and sobriety. So the gluttony is fueled by a hunger for joy. And when it's matched with a kind of more coolness, sobriety, 
that hunger for joy is still there. That never goes away, but it can be extended, manifested, expressed in a better way. Yeah, it's right-sized. Right-sized, yeah. What's one final thing you'd like to tell our audience about working with the Enneagram and, and Buddhism and how that that can help your situation or help your experience? Mm, yes. I guess what comes to mind is if you study the Enneagram, I think particularly through the Buddhist lens, but could also be through another lens, you will find a way to let yourself off the hook for what you are constantly berating yourself about. Hmm. I'll have the harsh inner critic it speaks in nine different ways. And when you can identify the way yours speaks, you can liberate yourself from it. Hmm. So there's no greater harm. And there's a very big statement I know than not liking ourselves. I mean, Einstein, he was pretty smart. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, the most important decision we can ever make is, do we live in a friendly or unfriendly universe? Hmm. That's the most important decision because life, your life extends from that decision. So most of us live in an unfriendly universe within ourselves. And the Enneagram has the power to cre create from that a friendly world, which changes everything. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Susan, for joining us on Big Universe. It's been a pleasure to have you. It's been a delight speaking with you both. Thank you. Please check out Susan Piver's latest book, The Buddhist Enneagram, Nine Paths to the Warriorship. To find out more about Susan, go to openheartproject.com. Is that correct? Totally. Awesome. For more information about Sarah Bowen and to order her new book, Sacred Send-Offs, an, an Animal Chaplain's Advice, for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet, go to sacredsendoffs.com. To contact me, you can email me at jim at youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter with Sarah Bowen. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.